If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome back to another episode of Healthcare for Humans. As always, I'm your host, Rosh Sundar, and today we're diving into culturally sensitive nutrition counseling. I know some of you are listening for the first time, but for those of you who have listened to previous episodes about caring for different communities, you probably noticed that the segment around nutrition shifted. It shifted from something corrective, what you should not eat from your culture so you can be healthier, to something more of a celebration. Tell me about your favorite food. Because food is so much more than just nutrition. You know this. I know this. It's a tapestry woven with culture, memories, and, shall I say it, love. It's about those dishes that bring back memories of home, of what your mom cooked growing up, the recipes passed down from generation to generation, the joy of sharing and celebrating around a common meal with friends and family. I shifted my conversation because in clinical medicine, we often miss the mark when it comes to nutrition advice. And I was doing that in this podcast, those well-intentioned but overly simplistic phrases like, eat more whole grains, more vegetables. Seems like sound advice, and we're all taught that, but don't always resonate with everyone. After all, not everyone grew up knowing whole grains. What does that even mean? And vegetables are so much more than just broccoli and kale. Today, we're fortunate to have a real expert around food joining us, Aliyah, a seasoned nutrition counselor with decades of experience working with patients, now working at a community health center. She approaches her work with grace and intentionality, leading by example on how to respect and honor food and cultural traditions while navigating the challenges of chronic diseases at the same time. Cultural sensitivity in nutrition counseling means recognizing that food is deeply woven into the fabric of people's lives and identities. When we respect and honor these connections, we create a much deeper level of trust and understanding with our patients. When dealing with chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension, she helps them make positive changes while preserving the essence of their cultural foods. Now, that's what we should all be doing. I learned a lot from her, and I think you will too. Here's Aaliyah. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited to talk to you about nutrition. This topic specifically, because we talk about it in a lot of our episodes, 
And I struggled through it because initially when I started this podcast, the idea was to talk about what nutrition to change, what food items to change, but it always came out as this strange feeling of the traditional culturally appropriate food is unhealthy. And we're trying to get people to eat this like broccoli. Yeah, exactly. Broccoli. Everybody loves broccoli. right? So we got to be careful about that. So hoping our conversation will cover a lot of things that hopefully you can help us navigate through so we can be better for the future and give our listeners a little more guidance on how to approach this topic. But tell me about yourself before we get started, Alia. I am a registered dietitian and I've been in this field for almost 25 years. I also served as the president of Nutrition First, the organization that represents the public health program big at the national level. I was feeling more and more the need for understanding food and nutrition and not just diet because people think that immediately as soon as you mentioned the term diet, they think it's for weight loss. I try not to use that. I try not to use words like consumption and intake and all that. So let's start there. What does culturally responsive nutrition mean to you? First of all, you have to understand the term food mm-hmm. and nutrition. What's food? What you eat is food. There's no such thing as junk food or healthy food or unhealthy food. And food is so personal. You love what you eat every day. And no one has a right to tell you what to eat, what not to eat. We got to repeat that. No one has the right to tell you what to eat and what not to eat. Because I feel like at healthcare, everything's about telling people not to do certain things for your health. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. It's something very personal. If you tell someone not to eat that, immediately there's this barrier curtain between you and that person and they're not going to listen to you. So it has to be a conversation, more of an understanding of what is going on with their life and why they're here with you. So I never start telling them what to do. I just ask them how I can help you. I'm trying to understand what you do and what you eat. So I never use the term don't eat this or don't eat that unless they ask me specifically. So That's a good it, point. Talking about how food is so much more than nutrition of the science yeah. of breaking down food into nutrients and micronutrients. And it has so much more meaning in people's lives. And I think that's the history of right. how so many cultures have sustained themselves for eons over different food practices. Yeah, And we need to acknowledge that their traditions to not only the consumption of food, but producing, growing it, preparing it, and their social and cultural practice along with all of it. So when you say don't eat that thing, you're actually taking away a lot more than that specific food item sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very personal. You eat for many reasons. To live for cultural reasons, medical reasons why you eat or can't eat certain foods. But then you can eat things by mouth, your ability to eat, swallow. That's a good second question. How do people determine what they're going to eat? Because I think sometimes in healthcare, food is a moral decision. Like you choose the right food or the wrong food. And you're a bad person if you're eating the wrong food all the time, right? There's this moral concept to it. But I think people's decision around food is complex. So how do people choose what to eat? I think it's culture which dominates the whole decision to eat or not eat certain things. You grew up around a certain culture, eating certain things, and you attach religious reasons, cultural beliefs and practices, and 
Like, for example, in certain cultures, there's this yin and yang approach, hot and cold foods. And sometimes it's the accessibility of food, where you live, what you grow, you have this personal attachment to that food. There is the regular bread that you get in America, or the flat bread that's made in India, different kinds. Or there is anjeras, another bread, or there is pita, or there is tortillas. So they're different food, they're different cultural reasons. And those cultural reasons have religious influences on top of them. And then festivals or cultural beliefs like fasting. In the Orthodox Ethiopian culture, you cannot eat for 55 days, starting February 22nd to April. You cannot eat any animal products, including milk and eggs. Or in the Ramadan, which is coming very soon in the month of March 22nd to April 22nd for a whole month. And they can't eat or drink anything by mouth for a, the whole day, based from dawn to dusk. We have to be sensitive. Number one, many people don't know that if they're sick, they are not supposed to fast. So there's no question of I'm fasting, so I cannot eat a medicine. But then again, you can't sit here and teach religion to anyone, right? Your best advice is you want to talk to a religious scholar. And even though I know 100%, you're not, still I can't say that. So you can say you could talk yeah. to your imam. Or I'm or a religious scholar, scholar who knows more about fasting. Yeah. Um, There's know. a humble way to approach it. And I think other part of food is, you said it's about culture, about food availability, schedules, goals. I don't want to undervalue taste preferences because I think when we talk about food, sometimes we make it so functional that we don't talk about yeah. taste. And it's okay for wanting food that tastes good. It's true because I remember one patient telling me that people ask me to eat oatmeal and I hate it. You have to take into consideration one's likes and dislikes. And then, of course, food allergies, food intolerance, sensitivity, availability, access. Access not just in terms of whether they have money to buy or but transportation is a big problem with many people, with elderly, with people who live on farms and far from uh, sources. So. There are many things, and that's why usually when a dietitian or anyone who talks about food meets with a patient, it takes one full hour because you have to learn so much before you can give your advice. Yeah, we'll talk about this because yeah, I feel like clinicians or people casually give food advice in two minutes, which is probably inappropriate. So we talked about what food yeah. means to people, all the components of how people yeah. decide what to eat. The next question that I have is, what does healthy mean? And how do you navigate that topic? Yeah. To me, it's what makes you feel good is my simple explanation. What makes you feel good? What causes less problems? If I hear about a patient saying hyperacidity or reflux problem, then I say, okay, this is a food which should help you reduce that feeling. So how you feel when you eat something. And I'm always telling people, when you look at the food, you should be happy. You should feel like eating that. And I tell them, please don't do this because Aliyah has asked you to do it, but because you would like to do it for yourself. Because if they constantly do it because I am telling them to do it, then they will come at time and say, I'm not going to listen to you, but I'll do whatever I want. Because you want control, right? You want control over things. Whether it's food or feelings or depression, it's about the loss of control, right? People just can't control their feelings. Do you like it? Do you feel like eating this food? And I go with that kind of approach. It's so simple but beautiful because I think 
whether intentionally or unintentionally, we tell people not to trust their intuition. I think the point that I'm getting there is just reflecting on my own experiences and talking to others is what makes you feel good is not just the immediate taste of the food, but how do you feel afterwards? Like physically, how do you feel the next week physically? Do you feel like you can do the things you want, move as you want, and overall just feel well, not just limiting to that one second of tasting it? Yeah, that's very true. And sometimes they come and tell me and not to offend you and nothing against doctors, but sometimes they come and tell me that my doctor told me not to eat this, not to eat that. What do you think? And I say, yeah, of course, maybe that's the reason she sent you to me because maybe there wasn't enough time to explain the whole thing to you. You don't have that much time. So I guess quickly they say, don't eat whole foods, eat whole grains and more fruits and vegetables. And blah, blah, so It's <laughs> a good transition on how are we doing it wrong? Let's focus on this one sentence that you just said. I think a lot of people default to this. Hey, you have diabetes, you have heart disease, you have hypertension, high blood pressure, whatever. You should eat more whole foods, more fruits and vegetables. That's it. Tell me why that doesn't work, just doing that. First of all, how many people know the meaning of whole fruits or whole grains, right? And how many people you think can eat fruits and vegetables only and live, right? There are so many other foods they eat in their life. Maybe they like to eat a donut sometimes. Maybe they hate orange or they eat leafy vegetables. You don't know anything about that. So if you just tell them to eat whole grains, then, you know, it's okay if you eat white bread sometimes. Yeah. So I think there's a lack of understanding what those words even mean. And you don't understand the situation to see if that's practical or meets all the needs of the patients. The other thing that I often see is using my plate. You've seen that diagram. And I think that also falls short because it tends to say that each food item is different and that's how you meet your needs. Yeah. So that's why, again, like I said, depends on the culture, right? I go by what they eat. Like in some cultures, they have a big plate and everyone eats from that. So I usually talk about portions. I just show them with my fist saying, if you have this much rice, try to get double the amount of vegetables. So then when they eat even from a single plate, they know how much vegetable to bring on their side. So yes, just going by the my plate idea doesn't work. I ask them, do you eat in a bowl or a plate? First of all, and how you know, eat your food. And then I go by that. And now with this telehealth and all that, I'm having to just ask them and explain to them what they're eating. And they tell me in bowls sometimes and tablespoons. So the whole concept is, I tell them sometimes, so from what you're telling me, it looks like you can eat a little bit more of a specific vegetable that they normally eat. I just ask them, how would adding one more tablespoon to that? And when you get used to it, add another tablespoon. So it's really important to go by the way they eat food and how they're understanding you. I love a few things you did that, where one is small adjustments, like just a tablespoon more and see if you like that. But two, like look in front of you and see the size of your hand and then you try to double it for this other. So using yeah. simple ways to communicate topics yeah. and making small changes can go a long way. The third is, I think you're good about this, is just being cognizant when you're telling people to change something that you're not unintentionally telling them to change their tradition. What's been passed down through generations is part of their culture and home, being careful about that. Yeah. But I do yeah. tell them that now they're here, especially in America, right? I sometimes I say, I've learned from other different cultures. 
and eating this other food is also a good way. Have you heard about it? And some of them say, oh yeah, I want to hear about that. So some of them were not used to eating, for example, anjera, which is made from teff, a very healthy grain, which has iron, protein, everything. So I tell that anjera, they said, oh yeah, I heard from my friend or something. And I said, hey, do you want to try it? So I'm always trying to add an additional little something for them to try. And some are very receptive to that. So I think we seldom do that because we look at somebody's traditional culture and then we try to compare it to, I'll say, quote unquote, American food, whatever that is. And you did something interesting there, which I don't think many people do. is like talking about other cultures' food. Actually, have you tried injera or have you tried? Do you have another example? I'm curious. Pita pocket, for example. I say, have you seen the pita bread? It's made from whole wheat also. And then you can fill it up with these things and they find it so interesting, especially kids. Yeah. And then you can make a pita pocket and eat. And they find it so fascinating and interesting that I've had many people of different cultures try it. The other thing I think we do wrong, we don't ask enough questions. So sometimes people have beliefs about relationship between food and health, like high blood or low blood. So when you say high blood pressure, you might actually be talking about something else for them. So they think they need to change this food. Have you encountered that? Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point that you brought in that the understanding of chronic disease basically is very different among different cultures. Because you can't see, I tell them blood pressure and what's high and low, blood cholesterol, what's high and low. And I tell them that all of us have it, but sometimes it's a little more than what we need or a little less than what we need. And then blood sugar, blood pressure, blood cholesterol, they're all silent things that you don't see. It takes some time for me to explain this to them, that these are things that you don't see. But obviously, a doctor has seen them by testing your blood. So it's good. Pay attention to it. And many other foods that you eat are already good foods. And then I ask them, maybe cutting down on this a little bit will help you. So then they are receptive. If you appreciate what they eat in their culture. So basically making friends that test before you even tell them about what's happening yeah, yeah. in their body and how they can. I don't think we know how to trust people to be experts of their bodies. And that phrase itself is a little complicated because I think we think of ourselves as experts, any clinician, because we do school, we studied so much, we have all this knowledge. So this idea of the patient being an expert or something is hard to reconcile with this problem that we're trying to solve together, right? You came here because you're sick and you want to know how to be healthy. And I'm telling you, this is what you should do. How do you make sure you incorporate the idea that patients or people have expertise too in their own bodies and their lives? Very good question. I have also tried my best to make it easy for them. Like, for example, when they come to me with high blood sugars, right? Very common these days, diabetes and high blood sugars. I tell them that, look, remember, you are in control of your body. You can control it yourself. No one is going to control it for you. You can do a lot of good things for yourself. I'm just here to give you some advice on whatever I know, but I'm going to learn more from you first. So that helps them. I think that gives them some kind of confidence in themselves and then they take care of it. So I tell them that I'm controlling all what you're doing. It's not good. Since that's what I'm saying, I spend 75% of my time just listening to them because people have to say so much about themselves, especially when we talk about food is so personal. And, and they're here with me. 
And I think it makes them, after some time, comfortable and they tell me everything about what they do the whole day. And it's so interesting and it tells me a lot about how difficult it is for people to manage their own life, especially when they're sick. So it's not just medicine, it's just so many other things are going on in their life. And I'm beginning to see a lot of kids going on this ketogenic diet and they restrict themselves to so few things. And then when they come to me, they are almost at the verge of developing eating disorders because they say, my brother wants me to go out with him. He doesn't understand what I eat. So it's a matter of relationships going bad there. I unintentionally sometimes start eating disorders because we blame and shame people and don't follow up because maybe their diabetes is a little better under control. They lost some weight, but maybe they've developed an eating disorder, very unhealthy. But we say, oh, the numbers look a little better, so you must be doing okay. Yep. And exactly. Just recently, we were uh, talking in a group about a patient whose numbers looked good. But then when he came to me, I asked him if he was going through any headaches and anxiety and feeling of hunger, all symptoms of hypoglycemia. He said, yes. I said, how many times in a week? Three or four times in a week. I said, oh. Then I immediately talked to his provider. I said, maybe he needs to cut down on this because he stopped eating. Because the minute they hear about high blood sugars, they stop eating. And just the fact that someone tells them you can't eat this, you can't eat that, that gives them so much anxiety that they develop all other problems because of anxiety. And I see pregnant women immediately weight loss because they think that if I eat, the blood sugar will go up. They forget about the baby developing in there. And I try to be really careful about children because I think we do a lot of harm there. Because we start this idea of good and bad food and blaming their bodies when it's sometimes hard for them to control what they look like. And especially with different cultures, I think people worry less. They're proud that their kid is chubby and like eating well. So be careful about navigating around this topic. But I'm curious on how do you make sure that you instill good habits of listening to your body and helping children trust their bodies and their eating and like how do you talk about that because we talk about childhood obesity so much i feel like sometimes we're causing harm the way we're approaching it weighing them all the time and all that stuff too yeah i think pediatric nutrition frankly is the most difficult in my experience because you're talking to two people the patient the child and the parent who's taking care of the child so Sometimes the child will listen to you, understand, but the parent is not letting them. Many times what happens, especially they have come from a different culture to to Americas or to the Western countries. They are used to the Western foods. And the parents are really feeling bad that the child is not eating their foods. And if it's a teenager, it's even harder. So usually what I do is I do listen to them and then I do try my best to tell the child to go to the library. I do that a lot and tell them to learn more about what your mom is talking about, your heritage, the foods that are good in your culture, and how about bringing that recipe to the mom. And that has worked in many cases. The parent is happy that the child is learning about their culture. And at the same time, I feel bad that the child is not respecting the parents' culture. I give them some homework. I listen to them. I talk to them about what they should be eating. 
And then I tell them that I want to give you a little bit of homework. Can you go home or can you go to the library and find a book on your culture and read about it and bring some recipes to your home? So that has helped in the past. And I continue to use that strategy depending on what the situation is like. And then the other thing is that, and this is very hard, you mentioned obesity. Sometimes the parents bring the child to me and say, he or she is fat. And I don't know what to do about that. You want to cry. It's very hard. And then tell them, no, your son or daughter is beautiful. I try to make the child feel good. And that, no, you're fat, so you're horrible. No, I try not. And then if the child is not there, I try to slowly tell the parent, that's not a good way to talk to the child. Never say that. If they are very little kids, I tell them, please don't talk to this child about being fat or being thin. Just introduce different foods that you eat. And if they are not introducing the right kind of foods, I tell them, this may be good for the child's health. It'll keep him or her strong. He can play better and concentrate more in the studies. Is there any barriers or roadblocks that they experience? Trying to raise children here and navigating different cultural diets. Yeah. I think it's hard for the parent as well as the child. And many different things are going on in their life. For example, one of the primary care providers sent this obese kids to me. And the mom, she met me in the hallway. She said, why do I have to come and see you? My kids are fat and healthy. Culture that she was coming from there, being chubby, a slightly fat, was a sign of health and nourishment. So was I or anyone here telling them that your child is overweight, so not healthy. To her, they were fat and healthy. Then she explained the whole thing to me. So I said, okay, you're, you're seeing me after lunch, right? At one o'clock, let's sit and talk about that. I'm sure kids are healthy. Then I learned that she was feeding nine cups of milk to the child. So I said, okay, let's talk about milk today. So why do you think milk is important? And then during the conversation, she told me that in the refugee camp, all they had was milk. So she was feeding milk. She was doing the right thing. The child at least was getting some nourishment. So you have to understand the reason behind why someone is doing something. It can be something as simple as that milk was thing that was available or sometimes not available. So whenever it was available, she was just feeding milk. Yeah, it's come out in other episodes. Sometimes the experience of being in refugee camps or times of scarcity yeah, makes it so now you're in such a period with abundance of so much yeah. food. It yeah. seems confusing to restrict yourself yeah. when you don't have right. to because you've suffered in that way. And I think your body yeah. physically remembers that suffering. Happens a lot in pregnant women also. They say the child born in the times of scarcity tends to be obese. Later, mm-hmm. because the child was programmed Minimal nutrition environment, and then not that there's things available for them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Next is indigenous communities. I hear from indigenous communities about food sovereignty a lot. I don't know if you've thought about this because with the native Hawaiian community, we've done an episode on that, as well as some of the native communities here, the conversation is also about how we've demolished their food pathways, right? So then a lot of the native communities became dependent on the government subsidies, which were not that healthy. And now we say they're unhealthy and blame them for the unhealthy. So this cycle of blaming people in communities 
I think leads to more distrust. And then we're still telling them at the end of the day, they come to see me and I tell them, hey, eat whole foods and fruits and vegetables. I don't know how you think about that. I think about, yeah, the food sovereignty idea with indigenous communities. So usually before I see a patient, I read about a little bit of history about their food habits. Where are they coming from? What have they been eating? And that helps me a lot in beginning the conversation. And I never tell them to eat things and vegetables, right? But I ask them about their food habits. And the conversation has to be very friendly around food. I'm there as a learner, not as an educator. I think I immediately put myself in the role of a learner. And that helps a lot. I learn so much about what they eat, what they used to eat. And then I slowly talk about access now. If they have access to those foods, and I encourage them to start eating. I tell them, you know what? These foods from your culture are excellent. Because I've seen people hesitate a little bit when they tell about their food because they think that I might say change that. When I encourage them to eat what they used to eat, immediately they, they open up and they tell me more. Simple example I give, because it happened recently, is of injera. This woman was hesitating to tell me said, it's a kind of cultural bread. So I said, can you tell me the name of it? Because I like to learn more about different types of breads. She said, in general, I said, yeah. Jeff, he said, oh, you know about that? So I said, yeah, it's a great, has this and that. And I guess you eat it with what or shiro. I said, oh my God, you know everything about our food. So she got so excited. It was a phone conversation. And then she started telling me all about the other foods they were eating until she opened up and started telling me the actual names of the breads. And then at another time, we had a Punjabi lady. And again, she said, we put some vegetables that we eat. And I said, is it like potatoes and cauliflower? She said, yes. I said, is it paratha with that? She said, oh, yes. And then, yeah. And for example, there is a West African soup they make out of different things. I said, is it Tigama? She said, oh, you know about Tigama. And you don't have to act like as if you know everything, but you can prompt them so that they open up and tell you more about it. So they feel comfortable basically talking to you. So yeah. a lot of my counseling sessions are concentrating on making a friendship, developing that rapport, because otherwise I'm not going to know. I don't want them to tell me things that please. I want them to be honest with. Yeah, because there's a power dynamic. Because they do want to yeah. please you. Because they're putting their lives at your hands, right? Right, right. And you're right about that. If I tell them, did you tell your doctor about it? They said no, because they're scared of you guys. If they think that you will get mad at them if you don't listen to you. So they tell what me. What a dynamic yeah. we're built. But yeah. I like that. So we're hoping to become a friend. And I think the second point you made that's really important for folks. It's about being curious enough and learning enough yeah. about each culture so you have somewhere to start. Yeah. Because people approach every relationship feeling like, can I really share this with this person? Do they know anything about my culture? And if they trust that you at least know a little bit, and then you can ask the right questions, that can open up space for more conversation, which I've found you know, with this podcast, that's what we try to do, helps a lot. Like you saying, Injera, Taf, you're like, oh, this person knows a little bit so I can actually yeah. share and they won't just stare at me blankly yeah. and then talk about Mediterranean. You know, they, two things happen. One, they think that you know a little bit. The other thing is they think that you have interest in. Yeah. That's why you know about it. Okay. Wrapping up. So I got a few more questions. What do you think about the Mediterranean diet? We talk about that a lot in medical circles about how it has a lot of evidence. 
but I find that it's a tradition rather yeah. than a small adjustment. So somebody comes in with a new diagnosis of diabetes, and then we tell them to, hey, eat the Mediterranean diet. If you learn about the Mediterranean diet, it's nothing but a general, I add different things that we think are good, and it has yeah. to be totally customized uh, to the patients. It's, it's, you can't just say eat Mediterranean diet. You just have to customize it to their needs, basically. All the needs, health and nutrition. Okay. I'm going to ask a hard question. Not everybody sees a nutritionist. They only see me as a doctor or see another clinician for a few minutes. Yeah. What is one thing that we can do, say, ask, that's actually helpful? Is there something else we should be doing to not make things worse or actually <laughs> make them distrustful or not come back to us? What's a better way for us to talk about or ask if we have just a few minutes to start the conversation about food? That's a very, very hard question. I told you it was going to be hard. <laughs> In a short period of time, it, it's really hard to know everything about a person. He said, yeah, I presented to a group of doctors. I'll go back to your question. I told them that when you ask them to go yes, it's very important for you as a primary care provider to have that trust in us. If you trust us and say that, I'm just using my name, that Alia can help you if you want information on it, then they will come to me with that recommendation from you that I can help. So that's one thing about making a referral, not just go and see a dietitian, but then the trust that you put in the dietitian makes a huge difference. And believe me, dietitians go through a lot of training so they know a lot, they can help the patient. So having said that, if you as a doctor want to tell them about food, I would say the first thing is that, what would you like to know about and ask them that question? Because then they may have a lot of things that they are afraid about. Like for example, one patient said, I love my coffee with cream and sugar in it. So you will hear things like that. There'll be one or two things they'll ask you. And that will open up the conversation and say, sure, you can have your coffee, but then how much sugar do you put in? If they're putting a little bit, that's fine, because that's not going to change their whole blood sugar diet. And from there, you can say it's not just uh, sugar in the coffee, but it's also the foods that have no fiber, for example. Point bread. Ten to three minutes. Three minutes is a big Actually, I remember when I was a student, I was trained with a doctor from ER, and we both learned about each other's in three minutes. They didn't tell us how much anything. It was about motivational interviewing. In three minutes, I knew a lot about him, so obviously I did a good job. <laughs> and then they stopped us and said, what do you know? And I told them about his student life and when he got his education and what he was doing. Oh, how many kids he had, everything. And he knew a lot about me at the same time. So yeah, ask. What would you like to know about, about food and as a doctor, what advice can I give you? And they will have a question for you. They always have questions that they want to ask them, uh, primary care providers. And usually the reason they don't ask you is because they think you don't have. And yeah, then because it is so rushed. That is an excellent point, though. I do think people of all backgrounds, but specifically immigrant, refugee, asylum, they know a doctor they know well, and they want to know this other person they can trust to. The doctor, clinician, whoever says, yeah, you can trust them, that goes a long way because it's hard to build 
relationships and know who to trust because a lot of people haven't been supportive, helpful, curious, interested. You know, they've led a lot of people that aren't that helpful. Yeah. So they just want to know because it's hard. So I make time for all of this stuff. Yeah. It's very hard. As a student, once I was sent to the sun floor, and this I find very interesting, but it's also very challenging because this woman wasn't eating. And as I was a student then, so I told my preceptors, give me a challenging situation. I know I did. So I went there and she wasn't eating. So I talked to her for some time. And then an idea just came to my mind. I said, if I check your food tray every time they send it to you, will you eat? So after that time that I had spent with her, she suddenly trusted me. I think she said, sure, will you make sure that they don't add poison to my food? I said, I promise you, I will Look at each tree before it's sent to you. And I checked with the nurse later on, she was eating. So I know I didn't solve her psychiatric problem, but at least she was eating. And I wasn't there to solve her the problem, right? I'm sure someone was looking yeah. for that. So trust is very important. And we do the same, we have the same thing about increasing the breastfeeding rates. We tell the doctors, just tell them. And if they have a problem to come to us, that you trust us, advice. And it makes a huge difference. Thanks so much. This has uh, been a pleasure and very informative conversation about food. Thank you. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. If you like this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person so they can also hear it. I'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified health care provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duwemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duwemish.